2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge thee before, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Let us stop there. We're going to use verses 3 and 4 as our text for the sermon tonight. May God bless his word, his infallible word, to our conscience and to our understanding. This text, which I have taken from the Apostle Paul, says, Preach the word. It's the word that the church is to deal with. It's the word that the church is to present to the people. Now you say, what's the relationship of a confession to the word? And I think we ought to get that point clearly defined in our minds as we open this discussion. A confession is simply a declaration of what we believe. Credo, I believe. That's what it means. And you say, I believe the Bible. All right, but what does the Bible say? I believe the Bible, but what does the Bible teach? I believe the Bible. We preach the Word, we preach the Word. But when you preach it and when you bring it down to a declaration as to what that Bible says... Then you spell it out, and that's what the Westminster Confession of Faith is. It's simply a spelling out in orderly form of what the Bible says about itself, about God, about man, about sin, about the orders of salvation, God's great plan for delivering us from our misery and death and taking us to himself. And we are, as Presbyterians, a confessional church. We're a church that preaches the Bible... But when we say, what does the Bible teach? Our fathers sat down and wrote it out for us and summarized it in good order. And that is the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism. The Bible doesn't change. The teaching of the Bible doesn't change. What God has been pleased to reveal to us concerning himself in the Bible hasn't changed. And the Westminster Confession is the declaration of our fathers of what they believe the Bible taught. That's all it is. Now you can ask this question about the Bible, and there's some other groups that feel differently about some of these things in the Bible. The Methodists have a little different slant on some of the things. And so you have the Methodist church. And the Baptists, they have a little different emphasis on some things, and they have their Baptist churches. But we are a church, the Presbyterian family and the Reformed family have always been committed to the Westminster Confession because when that assembly sat down, they went into all these questions to write out and summarize and state as clearly as could be stated in our mother tongue what the Bible teaches. 
And so that's the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the doctrinal standards of our church. Now, beloved, this Westminster Confession of Faith has been bound in to the life and the ministry of the church by certain solemn vows. I stand here in this pulpit tonight, and in the course of my life, I've taken several vows. Some years ago, I took a vow to marry my wife and to live with her, and I've kept that vow, and I intend to keep it. The rest of you took vows like that, too. But I took another vow when I was ordained to the ministry, and the first of those vows was, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments to be the Word of God? The only infallible rule of faith and practice. The church isn't infallible. No man's infallible. Nobody's infallible. But this book is. This book is the infallible rule of faith and practice. This is what I'm to believe is what this book teaches. What I'm supposed to do is what this book says and commands. The second great ordination vow was, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith, this summary of the doctrine? the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, as containing the system of doctrine set forth in the Holy Scripture. The first vow ties you to the Bible as infallible. The second vow ties you to the system of doctrine which this Bible teaches. This Bible has a marvelous plan of salvation in it. Most wonderful plan you ever could conceive of. It's a glorious, well-ordered, well-rounded deposit which God has handed down to us that we might know what his program and what his purpose is for the salvation of sinners. So those are your two vows. I took them. And furthermore, I've been bound under them all these years, and as I stand here before you tonight to preach the gospel, I'm honoring those vows this very minute. And I'll continue to do it as long as I live. So you have a Bible, you have a confession, and you have vows. Here they are, just as simple as they can be. The Bible's first, the confession's a summary of it, and the vows bind you to it so there can be no vacillation or variation or double talk and and no nonconformist, you simply have to maintain these teachings in the church if we're going to maintain the gospel of Jesus Christ. We often speak of the Westminster Confession as containing the doctrines of the church. Well, they do. It's a summary of the great doctrines, and so we're a confessional church. I don't want to digress from this message, but I do want to say to you people, that in the overturning and the great separatist movement that's developing today, a lot of people leave the apostasy and then they go out here to wander around in a sort of a no-man's land and they don't know where they're going and they don't know enough about history or the church to realize that they're going to ruin their works and they put their money into some little group somewhere and there's no stability to it. It maybe has five or six or ten points of fundamentalism and that's all they have. And each preacher has a different doctrine, and they work with this one for a while, and then someone else comes in, changes it all around, and they work with him for a while, and first thing you know, somebody else comes off and runs off of the whole church. And that's going on today. But we aren't in that category of fundamentalist. 
We are a people who are bound to this great confession and all of its summary of these great and many subjects that the Bible deals with. And nobody's going to come in here and run off with this church. Nobody's going to come in here after I leave and I'm gone and say we'll have some new doctrines because we're bound to it, our elders are bound to it, all of our officers are bound to it, we're tied in with a presbytery where every minister's bound to it, and our purpose is to preserve sound doctrine. That's our purpose. Now, one other thought that needs to be expounded for our understanding, and these are the most elementary things that relate to the maintaining of the church of Jesus Christ. A confession of faith is written from the standpoint of what the Bible teaches and not from the standpoint of your sinful and changing experience. Please get that difference. We simply confess what God wants us to believe, and the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And your faith doesn't rest upon the preaching or the ideas of this man that's in this pulpit. Your faith rests upon the teaching of that book. And you can take what I say and search the Scriptures daily, and you can test by that book whether your pastor is misleading you or misinforming you, or whether your pastor is faithfully presenting to you the truth of the Bible. Now the new approach, and the approach of the new confession as we get into it, is from the standpoint of confessing the experience of the church. And so as the church grows and progresses, that experience grows and expands, and we enter into new depths of learning and new light is shed upon us. We need, therefore, a new confession. And that's why they call it the Confession of 1967. They've dated the thing. And it's all built upon the idea that 300 years ago, yes, they had the Westminster Confession, and that was good for their day, and that expressed their light and their experience 300 years ago, but that's long since out of date for us. And so the new approach is no longer to say that the Bible stands infallible and irrevocable. What does it say? Let's confess it. But the new approach is, well, the Bible isn't what we used to think it is. Now we have grown and we have experienced these things, and we will now develop a confession on the basis of our experience. And this is the first time that the Reformed churches have ever tempted to do it. Never before in the history of our Protestant and Reformed churches has a confession been written from the basis of an experience or on a platform of changing opinions in a given day. Never has any such an approach ever been made in the history of the Christian church. It's entirely new. Furthermore, it's definitely wrong. Absolutely wrong. 
Now, before we get into some of these other developments for you, I want you to turn with me to Timothy. This passage in Timothy, <clears throat> where the apostle speaks of this matter of doctrine. Preach the word, he says, uh, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Well, where do you get your doctrine? You get it out of the book. You get your doctrine right out of this book. And then when you turn into these passages in Timothy, you find that there are a great many references to doctrine, especially in Timothy and in Titus. And will you please turn with me to 1 Timothy, the chapter, the first chapter of 1 Timothy. And you'll turn down in this sixth verse, or rather the fifth verse. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside to vain jangling. Well, I would say very frankly that as we get into this confession, I think it is vain jangling. That's what it amounts to. It's the jangling of man. That's what they're doing from experience to an experience. They've turned aside, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor what they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to what? Found doctrine. And the standard in all these areas of conduct is the sound doctrine. And we didn't produce the doctrine. We didn't make the doctrine. The doctrine didn't come out of our vain janglings. The doctrine hasn't been put together by some kind of a committee that sat down and everybody gave their opinions and viewpoints and you had a dialogue. And when you got through, you drew up some kind of a common statement that was a common denominator of all your beliefs. Not for one moment does doctrine find its shape in that manner. Doctrine is something which God has revealed to us and which we have in the Holy Scriptures. And we take the Scriptures, and our own confession says, that in all matters of controversy, the supreme judge, by whom all doctrinal controversies and questions of religion are to be decided, can be none other than the Holy Spirit speaking through the Scripture. And beloved, that's it. The Holy Spirit gave the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit teaches through the Scriptures. And you read the Scriptures, and that's the doctrine. The Holy Spirit reveals it unto you. And it's by the standard of the doctrine as it's taken from the Scriptures that every other question is to be evaluated and judged. Well, beloved, when you throw away this doctrine of the Scripture then... You, you, you find yourself out in a broad sea, swept here and there by all manners 
of winds that blow. The winds and the storms that blow across the church and across mankind and across history. And we're not being tossed to and fro by the winds that blow. We are a people who are anchored upon the rock. We are a people who stand upon a rock, which is the infallible Word of God. And God has given it to us that we might have the message of everlasting life. When you turn to these matters of doctrine, will you look to 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter? Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times men shall depart from what? The faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of the devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy and having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And then turn down to verse 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister, nourished up in the words of faith and of what? Good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. And beloved, I'm in this pulpit tonight, this Sunday night, and I'm seeking to put the church, I'm putting the brethren, I'm putting all of you people in remembrance of these things, that you may be nourished up in the words of faith. And these words of faith are the words of God. These words of faith are the words of the Holy Scripture and of good doctrine so that you can attain to an understanding of what God's given you and this truth will bless your soul and it will direct your path upon this earth. Now, in regard to this new confession of 1967, I want to touch very briefly upon the matter of the ordination vows. And all I need to tell you is that they've done away with the first two that I've told you about. Done away with them. They don't exist anymore. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament to be the Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? And I do, but uh, that's removed. It's no longer going to be the vow that the ministers take. And the removal of this is reflected in what the new confession says about the Bible. Because they no longer believe the Bible to be this infallible rule of faith and practice. And so if it isn't confessed in the creed anymore, and it's no longer a part of the creed anymore, why well, ask the, the ministers to take a vow to that effect? And the real basic trouble with the whole new confession of 1967, in fact, the reason they had to have a new confession for 1967 is that men no longer believe the Bible to be the infallible Word of God. That's the reason for it all. And that's the one great point that I want to get across to you people as we speak on these things now and open up these various subjects to you. The second vow, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith of this church is containing the system of doctrine? And then that's all gone too. Doesn't exist anymore. They just, just dropped it. A clean, straight, forthright approach. We'll eliminate vow number one. We'll eliminate vow number two. 
And no longer will our ministers be under this binding obligation so far as the system of doctrine is concerned and so far as the infallibility of the Bible is concerned. Oh, beloved, may I stop here just a moment. These are so fundamental. When you think of the vows and the confession and the contractual relationships which are there, a great church is moving in to change the basic contract which they've had with the people. The whole contractual relationship under vows, under oaths, under these commitments is to be changed. And I want to say from this pulpit tonight that when that is done in May, every bit of the property that the United Presbyterian Church has ought to belong legally and it certainly belongs morally to the Presbyterians in this country that will continue to maintain the original contract. Now, in regard to the Bible, may I say that in a brief, brief message like this, you just, especially after you've written a book on the subject, <laughs> there's a many little things that you want to put in, but you can't, and I'm just going to give you enough, I hope, so that every one of you will take this book as I've expounded these things and all these ramifications and all these details and all these angles and worked it out for you. And that with what I'm giving you here on Sunday night, and when I give you the book next Sunday night, you'll be able to go, and you just won't stop until you digest it. And when you get through with it, you'll be grounded. You'll be established. You'll be settled. And you'll know what you believe it and why you believe, and then why you're willing to stand and suffer here in our generation for the things of Jesus Christ. I was interested in seeing that this great unbelief, this awful apostasy which has hit us so, and we've been feeling it in the Protestant world these many years, and your pastor especially has been immersed in all this, that now it's all coming out in the Roman Catholic Church. We knew that it was in the Roman Catholic Church. We've seen evidences of it. But this week, Time magazine of all the magazines, and I'm literally amazed that they would do it. But they did. And devoted its whole section of religion to the repudiation of orthodoxy on the part of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, beloved, we have issues with the Roman Catholic Church. But the Roman Catholic Church has always believed the Bible to be the Word of God. They just added their traditions on top of it. And the Roman Catholic Church has always believed in the Virgin Mary. And one of the great problems that's been in our minds through these years is that how can the Roman Catholics with their belief in the Bible and their belief in the Virgin Mary and their belief in the Trinity go over here and work with Bishop Pike and join hands with all these liberal Protestants that have been so blatant in their repudiation of the virgin birth and so blatant in their repudiation of these doctrines. Well, we've known for some years that this element was in the Roman Catholic Church. And some of the Roman Catholics have been aware of it more and more. But this week's Time magazine brings it all out into the open for the first time, so far as I'm aware. And may I read you from this week's issue of Time magazine. 
under the section Roman Catholics, the Second Vatican Council unleashed a passion for change in the Roman Catholic Church that has shown no sign of subsiding. And nowhere has the urge to question and challenge the past taken deeper roots than in the Netherlands, where a branch of the church once noted for its stodgy conservatism has suddenly become the acknowledged center of Advent-guard thinking within Catholicism. Quote, orthodoxy is the tragedy of Christianity, says the Reverend Juice Arts, the priest editor of a Catholic weekly called New Line. What we need is a rethinking of all the bases of Christianity. The story continues, priests and laymen are now questioning everything from the virginity of Mary to the traditional view of pre, that premarital intercourse is sinful. Such challenging of accepted doctrine is not done by a handful of youthful Christian rebels but by mature and sober thinkers with considerable reputations outside of their country. Many Dutch theologians intimate that the perpetual virginity of Christ's mother may be a myth. It's more modern, says one, to believe that Christ was the son of Mary and Joseph. Dominican theologian Edward Shellybeck 52, expert at the Second Vatican Council, proposes that the resurrection of Jesus may not have been the physical recomposition of his body, but a unique kind of spiritual manifestation. One generally likes to consider his resurrection, he says, as being the impact of his personality on his disciples and his presence in the hearts of all Christians. Now another section goes on, as for heaven and hell. Dominican theologian Willem von Marx shrugs them off as myths. Heaven and hell just do not preoccupy us anymore. Now, beloved, that is exactly what you have in the new confession. Here it is. And now you see all the liberal element coming out from undercover in the Roman Catholic Church, so there'll be this connecting link between the Blakes and the Pikes and all the liberals in the Protestant field and then all the liberals in the Roman Catholic field and watch, beloved, watch, 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 and see if the Pope dares excommunicate any of these great leaders of the Roman Catholic Church now for denying the virginity of Mary and for assaulting the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church in these matters. And there is on the Roman Catholic side a repudiation of orthodoxy. There is on the Protestant side a repudiation of orthodoxy. And you have the orthodox and the unorthodox. You have the conservatives and the liberals. And the Roman Catholic Church is now balancing herself out so there can be a union of the Bishop Pikes with the Netherlands theologians and they will all be under the canopy of the great Mother Church from Rome. 
And the new confession of 1967 is leading the United Presbyterian Church right into this very area. There's no mention of heaven. There's no mention of hell in the new confession of 1967. And when someone made a motion that they put a reference to the virgin birth of Christ in the new confession, they didn't even get a second to the motion in the General Assembly. And all of this stems, and all of this comes from one great basic collapse, and it's the breakdown of faith in the Bible as the Word of God. That's what it is. Now, there are two things about this Bible being the Word of God I want to present to you. In the New Confession, there is a section on the Bible, but it doesn't come until down toward the end of the first great division. But may I read you this statement, and I have two of them. I don't have time to get into all these statements, but I've taken that confession and taken sentence by sentence and paragraph by paragraph and analyzed it in this book on the death of a church, which I want you to read. Quote, The Scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashions of the places and times at which they were written. End of quote. Now the way that statement ought to read is like this. The scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Scripture are therefore the words of God. And they present to us the revelation of God through the prophets and the apostles. That's the way it ought to read, because that's what it is. But they come along and they say, the scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Well, we all believe that, you see. Are nevertheless, why did they put the word nevertheless? Why did they want to break down? Nevertheless, the words of men. Conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashions of the places and times at which they were written. No, beloved, the Westminster Confession in this blessed first chapter tells us that the confession, that the, the scriptures are indeed the word of God. And then the chapters are all named, the books are all named, and they are to be received in the church because they are the word of God and God is the author thereof. And God so led and so inspired the writers of Holy Scripture under his spirit that they were kept from error. And there's no scholar, there's no man that ever lived that knows enough to say that the Bible is mistaken. But let's take for just a moment the thought forms of the time in which they were written. Next Sunday night I'm going to get into the whole question of what they've done to my Lord and what they've done to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that sent me, he gave them. Jesus delivered the words of God, and he got his message from heaven, not from the times and the conditions of the days in which he lived. 
And when Jesus Christ said, Had ye believed Moses, ye would believe me, because he wrote of me. And if you believe not his writings, neither will you believe my words. Jesus Christ knew of which he was speaking. And when he said of Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. And before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus Christ said, If I tell you of earthly things, ye must be born again. And ye believe not. How will ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up into heaven, save the Son of Man who came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. And while he was giving these words, he says, nobody's ever gone up there to find out what it's like, but I've come down here to tell you what it's like, and in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also, and whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way. And that wasn't a thought form of the first century. I am the truth. And that was not some conditioning by the expressions and the terminology of the culture of his day. He is the truth. The eternal truth. And heaven and earth will pass away, he said, but my words will not pass away. And he put his words before eternity and unto eternity. His words weren't conditioned by the thought forms of a uh, primitive people living in Palestine in the first century. Jesus Christ said, I am the life. And this life is only in Christ. And the words that I speak unto you, he said, they are spirit and they are life. And he didn't get his words from some parables that were brought over from Grecian mythology. He got his words and he received his message from the living and the true God. My, oh my, think of this new confession. Hell telling the church, the scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men, conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashions of the places and times at which they were written. Jesus Christ said hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, and nobody thought about that in his day. He had to bring that with him from heaven. Thank God tonight that you believe in God and you believe he has revealed himself to us that we might be delivered from sin and death and that we might have commandments to tell us how to live and how to serve him and how to spend the three years, three, four years, three score years and ten, the short time that we do have our breath upon this earth together. Beloved, I tell you tonight, the church of Jesus Christ can't live on the words of men. They're straw. But the word of God is quick and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's that word which by the gospel is preached unto you. 
And as I stand in this pulpit tonight and I open up to you these great glorious truths of our faith and I'm coming to grips with the simple and the glorious realities of our faith, you are sitting in the presence of eternity. You are sitting in the presence of a revelation from God. You are sitting in the presence of a message that can be preached from this pulpit and it's been preached down through these centuries by men made of flesh and blood like myself, but they believed it and they went out and said, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And this pulpit is here to deliver unto you people the unchangeable word of God. And oh, how you love it. Sweet to your taste. Three and a half million Presbyterians are having the foundations taken out from under their house. And then they're putting some others in under there. I don't know how you want to use the figure of Pete. Sometimes, figure of speech. Sometimes I think they're just putting foundations under. Sometimes I think they've taken a big crane, lifted the house up, and put it over on their new foundations. Whichever way you look at it. The foundations are separated from the house. That's what's happening. And who knows what's going on. How ignorant we are. Whole generation in my lifetime has been fed on husks. Been fed on stones. The only way they can do it is because the people are uninformed and they're ignorant of the truth. And they don't know what the great system of doctrine is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's why I want you people to hear these messages. That's why I want you to hear me next week when I get into Jesus Christ. That's why I want you to hear me when I get into the church. And if you'll listen to these messages on Sunday night as your pastor stands here and preaches sound doctrine. And as the Holy Ghost takes this truth into your heart and consciences, God will seal it. God will bless your faith and strengthen your faith. And then God will challenge you to go out and be a soul winner. To go out and be a worker for the cause of righteousness. And to seek to serve your God here on this earth. Now the second matter, and I'll deal with it briefly. It's in this confession. And it is also of the greatest importance so far as the future welfare and the testimony of, of the church is concerned. You know, after they get rid of the Bible, do they get rid of it? What are they going to have in its place? What are they going to bring along and give you in its place? Let me read it to you. Quote. God has spoken his word, it's a little w, in diverse cultural situations. Now listen to this. As God has spoken his word in diverse cultural situations, the church is confident that he will continue to speak through the scriptures in a changing world and in every form of human culture. Do you get the impact of that? We've just been told that the scriptures were given under diverse uh, uh, forms, thought forms. They were conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashions of the times and places in which they were written back in the days of the prophets and the apostles. Now we're told 
that as God has spoken his word in diverse cultural situations, his word has come through cultural situations. The church is confident that he will continue to speak. He's going to continue to speak now through the scriptures in a changing world now and in every form of human culture. So you can study the scriptures if you want to, and you can get out of it what you think is the word of God, but that's not all of it. Let's go out to all the other forms of human culture. Let's go look at them. Go to the Hindus. Go to the Mohammedans. Go around the world. Go to the communists. And here you have these various forms of human culture. And what are we told here? That God will speak in every form of human culture. Beloved, I don't think God's speaking in communism. I know he's not speaking through Hinduism. I know he's not speaking through Mohammedanism. Jesus Christ said, all that ever came before me were thieves and robbers. The sheep didn't hear them. But I've come that ye might have life, and my sheep hear my voice. And beloved, when I read that to you tonight, that you're going to get the knowledge of God and his word through all the various diverse forms of human culture, every form of it, let's fold up our missionary program. You don't need to worry about that. Go out there. He'll speak to you through these things. Just listen. You'll get it. You just listen. You'll get it. And when they've gone away from an infallible Bible, which is the only infallible rule of faith and practice, then they say, well, you can still read it. You can get something out of it. Perhaps you'll lay aside these parts that we know are mistaken. But then go out to every form of human culture and listen to God speak to you there. And what have they done? They've opened the door for this syncretism, this blending of all these religions into one great composite religion someday. And we're moving down that road tonight. And beloved, you're living in the 20th century. You're living here in the United States of America. You're living in an hour when a church for 300 years had a great creed. They've laid it aside because it isn't infallible anymore. The Bible isn't infallible anymore. And they say, now we're going to get some guidance out here. We're going to get some guidance over here. We're going to get some guidance over here. And when we have a great church, this fellow's guided by this culture, and this fellow's guided by that culture, and this fellow's guided by some other culture, and this guy's guided by some other culture, and you've got a great combination of cultures. Everybody's saying they're getting some guidance out of all these cultures. That's what it says and that's exactly what it means. And I want you people to recognize that we're in the midst of a tremendous overturning and revolution in the religious life of our nation tonight. But who will listen? Stay at home and look at the television. Who will pay any attention? surfeited with our affluent society. Who cares anymore about these things? And that's our problem. And every time you go to deal with these things and they come to the Word, you come back to the Word, then you've got Christian people and you have them right around me and here in this town say, oh, I wish Dr. McIntyre wouldn't talk about these things. Dr. McIntyre doesn't talk enough about them. If I took to, talked enough about them, I wouldn't have some of the members of my church walking out of here and going back and joining the apostasy. If I talked enough about these things, we wouldn't have some of our people going down to Florida and joining up with the folks that are against us. 
If I talked enough about these things where you understood them as you ought to understand them, you'd say, I want to stand on the Word and I want to rejoice in the Word. And when this great apostasy swoops down upon us and it engulfs everything, the time has come when I must be a part of a movement that's going to save remnants and help churches and do what we can to bring the people out of this apostasy and let them build churches which will be established on an infallible Bible. Don't you think that Collingswood's had enough of this? Collingswood needs to hear what your pastor's telling you tonight. And these precious children, these young people growing up in our midst, they need to take the book that Dr. McIntyre's written and study it and underwrite it, underscore it and underline it and go back again and again and understand what it needs, what it means to throw away ordination vows and to change them. And to understand what it means to say that... Uh, Though the Bible was given by the guidance of the Spirit, nevertheless, it's the words of men. Beloved, if all I had to give you people tonight was the words of men, I wouldn't be standing in this pulpit. Your word's as good as mine. But I'm here tonight, and I've dedicated my life and my ministry and everything I have to giving you people the message of everlasting life. And this is the only message that'll save your soul. And this is the only message that'll take you to heaven. And this is the only message that has in it the power of the resurrection. This is it. Well, beloved, I'm going on now. You say, after they get through laying the Bible aside and we'll deal with Christ, what are they going to do? Well, they brought in their eyes, whole great big program. They brought the whole thing in. They got a program. They got a plan. They get rid of the program of God and they bring in their own program, which is the fruit of their own thinkings. And it's all in this great confession that they're adopting. They call it the Confession of 1967. The only thing is, the other day I read an article in the Christian Century in New, in New in Chicago, it's the big liberal magazine, and they said the men who wrote this confession are already so far behind and it's taken them so long to adopt it that it's out of date when they get it adopted. And the Christian Century said by the standards of these liberals and the way in which they've been going and the way in which they've become activists in the political field, uh, this confession is a conservative document. And that's their relativism. But there is no relativism with me. It's thus saith the Lord. You believe and you'll be saved. You doubt and you repudiate Christ and you'll be lost. There is a heaven for the redeemed and there's a hell for those who do not find Jesus Christ. And tonight the only way in the world you have any hope of being delivered from death and from hell is to come to the cross of Calvary and believe that on that cursed tree the Lamb of God shed his blood for you and me and believe that in that great sacrifice Jesus Christ made the atonement which enables you to rise up and be a free man and to serve Jesus Christ with all that you have. Beloved, this is the first in eight messages I'm going to deliver to you on this new confession and what it means and ought to mean in your life and in your church and in your country and in the way in which we go. Come back next Sunday night and we'll deal with our Lord.
And then I want you to see me. I'm going to deal one Sunday night with the cross. Please don't miss the message when I take this cross and open up these great truths concerning it. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee that we are a people who believe Thee. And now, Father, as so many are misled and so many are deceived and so many are confused, Oh, Father, we thank Thee that we still have the freedom in this country to deal with these matters. And bless this little book which we've written now as it's distributed all over the land and all over the world. And may it be a benediction in the life of our own church. For Christ's sake, amen.